Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to our special episode of Political Currency, Inside the Room, the Coalition Talks. In our last episode, we walk you through the first couple of days after the May 2010 election. A hung parliament, nobody's got a majority. What's to be done? Can a coalition be formed? Is the next Prime Minister going to be David Cameron? Or is Gordon Brown going to stay in office? And we've been discussing that with the help of Danny Alexander, who was the leader of the Lib Dem negotiating team, Nick Clegg's chief of staff, absolutely in every room. That's right. So if you remember, when we left you, we were at the weekend after the general election. The Conservatives, myself as part of that negotiating team, had been talking to the Liberal Democrats. Formal talks were underway, but they were beginning to run into various roadblocks, not least around constitutional reform. At the same time, the Liberal Democrats have opened up a completely secret channel of conversations with Labour that are not known to people at the time, weren't known to me at the time. Let's move on now to the Sunday, because what had looked like a relatively straightforward process of putting together a coalition was starting to fray. And we were beginning to think, is Britain going to get any kind of government anytime soon? Top stories at six. We'll meet again. Power sharing talks between the Tories and Lib Dems have ended for the day, but the two sides say negotiations will continue. Nick Clegg has been talking, holding a phone conversation with David Cameron this afternoon as the Tory leader heads to his parliamentary office for an open session with MPs. But Gordon Brown is battling on, meeting his inner circle at Downing Street. We'll have... So here's an example of where I think the news is behind real events, because by Sunday night, we had started to give up on the concept of a coalition. We were talking potentially about a supply and confidence motion. We were very nervous about Liberal Democrat talks with Labour. And there was a a big sticking point. There was a big issue. We had managed to persuade the Liberal Democrats to sign up to our economic policy on 
public expenditure reductions. And in fact, Mervyn King had been played in, Gus O'Donnell had been played in, and uh, Nick McPherson, the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, had all spoken to Vince Cable. And I think there had been calls with Nick Clegg to persuade him that things needed to happen to constrain public spending. This is later became known as austerity. Because remember, overhanging all of this is a pervading sense of economic crisis with other countries like Greece getting into trouble precisely at this weekend. But there's a big constitutional sticking point, which is, could anyone offer the Liberal Democrats, either the Conservatives or the Labour, a change in the voting system? And we were beginning to run into this brick wall, which was the Liberal Democrats wanted things we didn't think we could give on the voting system. And it appeared to us by the end of Sunday that Labour, or rather Gordon Brown specifically, was prepared to cut a deal on the voting system. Danny, is that a fair reflection of where we got on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, firstly to say there was a, definitely a sense of urgency because of the economic situation. That was from the very beginning. And I think that was true on all sides, actually. And then for the Liberal Democrats, electoral reform and political reform more generally was absolutely a central issue, had been for decades. And we could not form a coalition government unless we had some ability to move the issue of electoral reform forward. And we were very transparent about that. And we had in our team, in addition to myself and David Laws, Chris Hewn and Andrew Stunnell, they were both played in to be sometimes the bad cop in the discussions. And we were we were very clear, we're just not taking this any further unless you can bring something forward on, on electoral reform. There are two Gordon Brown Dick Clegg meetings over the course of this afternoon. And um, our feeling that day, certainly my feeling that day, was uh, it was a bit like being a football chairman in the Premier League when you've got a star striker who you're trying to sign and they're talking to you and the agent's talking to you and you're having some negotiations but you really know the striker wants to sign for the other club and he and the agent are just trying to find a way in which they can kind of bid up the money and so you do feel a little bit kind of used in this. I don't think at the time we ever thought that these were really serious negotiations we were having with the Lib Dems, not least because Nick Clegg was desperate for it not to be known he was going to have these meetings with Gordon Brown on the Sunday. He wanted it to be all focused on the um, discussions with the Tories. There was a first meeting in the afternoon at which I think Nick is asking for legislation on the AV referendum to be in place before the referendums actually happened. We should explain AV, the alternative, alternative vote. vote. A, a, a soft version of proportional representation, which was kind of the um, discussion which Labour had initiated during the election campaign and that, I mean, it wasn't probably what the Lib Dems wanted, but it was in play. There's a first discussion between Gordon and Nick and Gordon's wanting to kind of give what he can on that. We then had a discussion in the evening, again in Portcullis House. I'd actually spent the afternoon bizarrely sitting in my department, in the education department. I was back in there totally alone because there was nowhere else to go while I waited for this meeting, thinking, why the hell am I back in the education department? You know, I thought I'd stop being a cabinet minister a couple of days ago. But then we have our discussions. I have to say, we are quite open to the discussion about political reform. I think you wanted us to ditch ID cards. We were all happy to do that. We were taken aback that you were supporting in-year public spending cuts, because that was not the Alistair Darling position and that was not the Vince Cable position. You'd sort of fought the election opposing in-year spending cuts in 2010 and then had changed your position. You'd gone towards the Osborne view on um, austerity and that was kind of a bit of a tension. But then, of course, a second meeting occurs deep in the bowels of Westminster late at night with Gordon and Nick 
which you attend with Peter Mandelson. And that is the moment when actually things really start to get heavy because we break away, as I understand it, from the sort of Nick Gordon phoniness. And Danny Alexander says, Gordon Brown's got to go if there's to be any progress. Come on, tell us about you. You you looked Gordon Brown in the eyes and you told him he had to go. Is that true? This was one of the more interesting meetings of my political life. So the, actually, the purpose of the meeting was precisely for Nick to give that message to Gordon, right? Which is to say that we're happy to continue conversations to work with Labour, but it has to be on the basis that if a coalition government is formed, you will step aside as prime minister. We didn't want to dictate who the new prime minister should be. That's not for us, but Labour should have a process to appoint a successor. But and, Nick didn't and, quite deliver it with and, the, the toughness that you wanted? And it was clear from Gordon's responses that Nick was delivering the message too politely. He's a very polite person and wasn't getting through. Gordon was saying, so, I'll stand down in the autumn once the AV referendum's through. And you were thinking, tomorrow is Gordon not early Gordon enough. Gordon was saying, think what we could do together over the next year and then I can make way for somebody else. And I just said, look, Gordon, what Nick is saying is that in order for these talks to go on, it has to be on the basis that you are no longer prime minister. But come like on, Dan, let me press you on this. So you, and, and, you, you're and, a young man, you know, relatively new as an MP. You know, Gordon Brown has absolutely dominated politics no, for a great man. Ma- many, a great man. many, many years. He's been this big, big figure, Chancellor and Prime Minister. What was it like telling him he had to quit? Um, it was a tough thing to say because he, he, I mean, whatever you thought of him as a prime minister and a leader, he had done a great job as an international leader to get the world through the financial crisis. So I had a lot of respect for him. But it was a political fact. And if that fact was not communicated, then these conversations couldn't go on. So that was my job. And it had to be done. And it had to be done clearly and so that it was unambiguous. And I knew from the way Peter Mandelson arched his eyebrows after I said it that the message had got through. So that was fine. That was enough. But it was a very difficult meeting. And after a few seconds silence after I spoke, the conversation went on as before. But clearly the message had got through. It's a very painful thing to say. But but again, politics is about being clear. So there's good and bad news if you're looking at 2024 for the Conservatives, which is you might still be in the coalition negotiations, but... The Liberal Democrats might ask that uh, Rishi Sunak stands down. Let's move on to the Monday. This is when, on the Conservative side, we feel the talks have broken down. But it turns out to be a pretty dramatic day again in British politics. Because if there was any doubt that the message had got through, Gordon Brown was determined to make it absolutely clear that he had heard what had been said. Hence the statement he made on Monday afternoon. Gordon Brown has announced he intends to step down as Labour leader, but will continue temporarily as Prime Minister as he tries to form a new government. Speaking in Downing Street, Mr Brown said the Liberal Democrats had asked to open formal negotiations with Labour. When the issue of who forms the government is settled, Mr Brown will go. But I have no desire to stay in my position longer than is needed to ensure the path to economic growth is assured and the process of political reform we have agreed moves forward quickly. Mr Brown's statement came after a day which ended with the Liberal Democrats saying there was still no deal with the Conservatives. And this discussion is dependent not only on the Liberal Democrat Party, but also on the proposals and discussions that are ongoing uh, with the Conservative Party and the representations that, frankly, are being made uh, by the Labour Party. And right now in the House of Commons, Conservative MPs are meeting David Cameron. Where does this leave his bid for government? 
So Andrew Adonis reports in his book um, that he had a voicemail at two in the morning on Monday from Paddy Ashdown saying, we've got to speak, we've got to speak. And when he finally speaks to him early in the morning, it turns out that the word is Gordon Brown has refused to give Nick Clegg and Dele Alexander what they wanted the night before. He's refused to go and that uh, this is terrible and he is the, the, the obstacle and it's being sabotaged. And actually over the course of that day, tension is building about whether Gordon will go or not. You even see that spilling out into the TV studios, particularly a row on the green outside Parliament, live on television between Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former press secretary, and Sky News's political editor, Adam Bolton. What's coming through loud and clear from a lot of yeah. Liberal Democrats is that their activists and their supporters yeah. are saying, hold on a minute, we did not vote to get you to put David Cameron in power. We voted to stop that happening. Well, did they vote to put uh, keep Gordon Brown in power? They voted. Did they vote to they keep voted. Gordon Brown in power? No, they didn't, and right, Gordon's exactly. accepted that today, so that which basis, is why... You, you, you no, but what does he do? What does he do? He just sort of says, well, here you go, David Cameron, come on in. You didn't actually get the vote you should have done. You yeah. didn't get the, the majority you said you were going you to do. You got a lot more votes than seats Yes, than I know. Me. Adam, you're obviously upset that David Cameron's not <coughs> I'm prime not upset. minister. I'm not upset. You I, are. You probably no, no, are. No, down, no, you no, probably don't are. keep Alice, casting Alison, aspersions. Alison, no, Adam, calm down. I am commenting. Calm don't down. keep saying oh, what God. I think. It got a bit carried away. I mean, you know. Alistair Campbell getting aggressive, who knew? Adam Bolton losing his shit, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> and we, as you can see, it was getting a bit fraught. It was much much calmer in the room. Much calmer. <laughs> it was clearly out on College Green, it was uh, it was getting pretty frenetic. And of course, actually, one thing we haven't really talked about during this whole episode is that when we first went into the coalition talks in 70 Whitehall, there was no one there. Literally, we walked into the door, no one outside. By the time you got to day four or five, there was a huge crowd and then demonstrators had started to turn up. A huge array of the world's TV cameras, studios had been constructed. The circus had definitely come to town. You're completely right. The world's media with a ringside seat. And inside Downing Street, things are also getting pretty intense uh, Gordon, I met with him and Peter Mandelson that morning and he said, look, you know, that's fine because I'll just announce I'm going to stand aside. And Gordon, I think, thought that maybe this would unblock things. And I think we thought, well, this will definitely call their bluff. Because uh, if Gordon says, I'm going, and my successor can then essentially take this forward after a couple of months, well then, you know, the Lib Dems aren't going to be able to blame Gordon Brown for being the obstacle. We'll find out whether they are really serious about doing this deal. And that's what he announces. You'd, you'd worked with Gordon Brown all these years. Very proud man. What was it like for him to have to announce he was resigning? How do you, I mean, emotionally up close to him, how did it feel in the room? Look, Gordon is like a politician and a statesman, and he knows when things have gone in a particular direction, and he's good at making decisions in these kind of moments. And so Monday morning, he was absolutely clear, you know, if I'm the obstacle, then I'll stand aside. Because in his mind, what he was talking about, the economic plan, a Labour, Liberal Democrat, progressive coalition was much more important than him. So, I mean, there was no persuading him. Nobody tried to persuade him. It was actually kind of quite matter of fact, this is what I'm going to do. I think the thing which he wanted was for Nick Clegg to um, agree that as a quid pro quo, there would be parallel talks with Labour and Lib Dems about the um, possibility of a Labour deal. And that was something that Nick was hinting he might agree to. And David Laws then publicly suggested wasn't 
going to happen. But um, I think he just wanted to get on but with it. But this was a very big and important moment because it did unblock things and actually it unblocked things on both sides. Well, which is put massive pressure on the Conservatives. Right, I mean, so, at that point, they've suddenly got to come up with a deal on PR. That's right. And so that was, of course, partly in our minds, is that a coalition's only going to work if we make progress on these policies. Nick didn't have a strong view about whether he he didn't prefer to be with the Conservatives or Labour. He preferred to be in a government that would deliver what he wanted. The big issue. I'm looking quizzically at Downing. No, you are, you are, and you're entitled to. But very quizzically. But the the big issue was the numbers, right? I mean, to do a deal with Labour would have been very politically complex. Every single vote in Parliament would have been complex. With the Conservatives. A, a substantial majority between the two parties. And so... I think you're definitely right on the numbers. And, and, so, so, and so that then, Just to throw this back to you, mm. just in terms of the Lib Dems, at this moment, suddenly, as I read it for Nick or for David Laws, maybe for you, going with the Tories kind of fitted more easily from an economic policy point of view, a bit more orange book liberal, small state liberalism, the kind of thing that David Laws and others had championed. But there's people on the other side of the party, like Charles Kennedy, like Paddy Ashdown, slightly more Labour-leading, Vince Cable. They had been told, I know, but Gordon Brown is the obstacle. Once he's removed, does it suddenly mean you've got senior Lib Dems saying to Nick, well, actually, maybe a deal with Labour is now possible? And does that make it harder? I mean, in our party, we had these accountability mechanisms. We were discussing with our parliamentary party every evening almost what was going on. And one of the questions was, is Labour serious or not? And so we had to try our best to explore both options. And there was pressure on both sides. And in a sense, we had to see what could be done with Labour. Was there really a willingness on their part? And could you make the numbers add up? And could we get something with the Conservatives that would actually move forward the issues that Liberal Democrats have been campaigning on for decades? And so I think it was good negotiation, honestly, on our part, to bring both sides to the table. So I've got, I've got two questions, which is, do you think you could have extracted more? Because Monday is the day when a lot of the key parts of the coalition agreement fall into place that then governs the country for the next five years. The Liberal Democrats sign up to our public expenditure plans. We sign up to your income tax proposals on taking the low paid out of income tax. There's a set of green initiatives, education initiatives. There's actually a row about Trident, which gets a bit lost in the whole uh, recollection of the period, but was quite important. Mm. I wondered in 2015, so jumping ahead, where we thought we might be in another hung parliament and we might be in a further coalition. I thought if I was the Liberal Democrats, seeing what had happened over the last five years, I might ask for more. For example, I might demand that uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is a Liberal Democrat in this coalition. Do you think looking back on that period, you could have extracted more? I think on the policy side, we extracted a good deal. I mean, I think we said at the end of it, the main things we said in our manifesto were all being delivered. About 70% of our manifesto pledges were in the coalition agreement. And they were all delivered. So that's not bad. But as you said, the discussions about personnel and departments and so on, those were on a different track. Those weren't in the discussions that we were taking part in. And I think, you know, we'd looked at different structures of coalitions in other countries. And in some of those, the minority party, you know, takes takes full ownership of two or three ministries and all the ministers are the minority party. We had discussed Nick Clegg becoming Home Secretary. Right. That was um, actually an option, and, and, which was give him a big department. And, which, and we had the, uh, rather than just foreign be- secretary. Well, because we thought that was too out of... Well, actually well so, we, so we had these discussions internally as well, right? Should Nick become Home Secretary or Foreign Secretary? Or, he definitely should have done Or that. should he become head of a ministry that was really a key Lib Dem policy, like the Education Ministry? We had this pupil premium. We were focused on delivering better education for kids from low-income backgrounds. 
so that he could really be identified with the policy. And in the end, we decided that it was better for him to be in a position where he had a chance to have oversight over the whole government and try and push the implementation of all of the policies. That may have been a mistake. Well, right? It may have, been, may have been better to say... He was of the constitutional reform. He, he that was. That kind of how it was billed. But the problem was, if you think of constitutional reform and the Lib Dem manifesto, you know, the AV referendum didn't work out. On Europe, you ended up with a referendum to leave the European Union. And in addition to that, you ended up signing up to no, no, um, Ed, raise sorry, tuition fees. Sorry, that's so you'd not have right. to say it didn't kind of quite deliver the well, way we, you expected. We didn't have a referendum on leaving the European Union. That happened after we left the government. That was a conservative policy after the election. Okay. So it was nothing to do with the Lib Dems. Well, we're going back to, of. we're jumping ahead here. We're jumping Absolutely ahead. not. It's nonsense. It's just uh, an ad hominem attack. An ad hominem attack. It was announced by the Prime Minister of a government of which you remember. It was a Conservative Party policy. Right. No wonder they didn't okay. form a coalition. So look, <laughs> this is let's go back to the Monday. There's a there's a key moment. Uh, I do, by the way. Well, we can talk about it some other time. I do think one of Labour's problems is it's very tribal. It's one of the things that puts people off Labour. Anyway, we're not going to open up that round. The, uh, it's George, a key, I'm mon- not tribal. Osborne reaches out. <laughs> Monday is a key day because. Gordon Brown's announced he's stepping down. But crucially, David Cameron gets the support of the shadow cabinet and the 1922 committee. This is the gathering of all the Tory MPs. I remember it all took place in the the committee room uh, 14, I think it is, in the House of Commons. And uh, there's a brand new parliamentary party. All these people have been elected. Like suddenly we had almost 100 new MPs. We hadn't met them like this in Parliament. And in a classic kind of Tory way, there was no, it was actually a bit like a union block vote. Instead of any kind of proper Liberal Democrat constitutional procedure. It was just like, are we in favour of offering an AV referendum as part of a price of coalition? Hands up if you're in favour. It was like, (laughs) everyone put their hand up. And so out comes William Hague with this. In the interests of trying to create a stable, secure government, we will go the extra mile and we will offer to the Liberal Democrats in a coalition government the holding of a referendum on the alternative vote system. So we went into Monday night, essentially with the main planks of an agreement in place. And simultaneously, there's a cabinet meeting of the government where um, there is a tacit agreement to continue with the negotiations, but actually with a sort of a lot of caution around the table. I think Andy Burnham spoke out against it overtly. Jack Straw, Alistair Darling, very cautious. And a sense that the AV announcement from the Conservatives had actually shifted things decisively in the direction I think we all thought it was going to go, which was a Conservative Liberal Democrat deal. And then we then went into another round of negotiations that evening, which were fractious, because I think the impression we had on the Monday night was that nobody on the Lib Dem side was really interested in talking to Labour, that it was quite perfunctory, it was quite short, it was quite aggressive, and the real discussions were happening somewhere else. So the stage is all set for what turns out to be the final day of the negotiations. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. Danny, we're hoping our big bid on the Navy vote might be enough to get things over the line for you. But I guess, Ed, in Downing Street, things are looking rather more gloomy. But how does it all unfold? Inside the Room will be back after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. So now let's look at Tuesday, the 11th of May. This is the end of the story. I don't think I'm giving away the punchline when I tell you that it ends with David Cameron becoming the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. A big step closer to a new government for Britain. The Liberal Democrats are back in talks with the Conservatives. The Labour team that tried to do an alternative deal that would keep them in power. Hours of talks, but no agreement. Clegg the Kingmaker. It's his call, and all day he's under pressure to make up his mind. I'm as impatient as anybody else uh, to get on with this, uh, to resolve matters one way or another. The Tory team calls for an end to the uncertainty about who governs Britain. They want David Cameron in number 10, and soon. It is now, I believe, decision time, decision time for the Liberal Democrats, and I hope they make the right decisions that will give this country the strong, stable government that it badly needs. What happens today is actually Gordon Brown calls the bluff on the Tory and Liberal Democrat negotiating teams by announcing that he is going to the palace and he is quitting as prime minister. This happens later on in the day. I remember watching it on television with David Laws. and I, We had to interrupt our talks and say, look, I know we've been going around the houses on the Trident policy or the environmental policy, but events are now unfolding. We don't have a coalition agreement yet signed. And Gordon Brown is leaving as prime minister. By the way, this puts pressure on the Liberal Democrats because it opens up for the very first time in all of this period an option for Cameron, which is to become the minority prime minister, which he couldn't have done simply by asserting he wanted to be the minority prime minister. He needed Gordon Brown to leave. Well, I remember that day we were going on with the talks. Gordon Brown didn't resign until mid-late afternoon. And so we were constantly... Late afternoon. Late afternoon. About 7 o'clock. And so there were these calls going on with him. Nick had a couple of calls with him where he was obviously testing to see was Nick serious or not. And we'd sort of formed the view, honestly, that Labour wasn't united enough to be able to form a deal with. Rightly or wrongly, that was the view that we'd formed. At the same time, my wife was nine months pregnant. Um, My cell phone went in the talks that morning. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to step outside. I may not be coming back. And all the Tories looked like they were... They didn't know what was going on. And it was my wife just calling to say, everything's fine. I'm travelling to London today. And so, yes, there was pressure on us because there were certain things we had to get through in the talks that day. And we knew that at some point, Gordon would decide to 
up sticks and, and go to the palace. But I think we also thought that once we'd discussed the AV thing in detail, we'd discussed the details around it. Having made the commitment, you were, the conservative side was not that fussed about some of the details, was our sense. They just wanted to get on with it. And so, There's the pragmatic Tories for you. Um, just get on with it. But then we had to go back later to our parliamentary parties and get their decision. And this was not a, all the new backbenchers stand up and raise their hands. This was a discussion and yeah. a debate. And that happened after it, it happened, Cameron had arrived in Downing Street. Yeah, and I remember the decisive intervention was Paddy Ashdown's, and he made a long speech about the inner turmoil he was going through, which I think everyone felt in some way. And then he concluded by saying, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good. So, it, and that was the decisive moment. I think the reality was that the Lib Dems' attempt to use potentially a deal with Labour as a way of putting pressure on the Conservatives to concede more essentially ran out of road at about midday on the Tuesday. You know, there had been a briefing to Paddy Ashdown from within the talks overnight, Monday into Tuesday, that me and Ed Miliband had been obstructive in the conversations. And we were both a bit mystified because, you know, I think we were sceptical, but we weren't obstructive. If there was a deal to be done, fine. We just never believed that you were serious. And, um, well, and we didn't think you were serious. No, no, no. So. Well, I mean, we were being accused of being squatters in Downing Street from Friday morning. Cabinet ministers didn't want to go to their offices or use government cars because we didn't want to look as though we were being illegitimate. The trouble is, in our system, if you haven't got a government and you haven't got a prime minister, things are very bad. And what happened over the course of that Tuesday was Nick Clegg kept urging Gordon to stay on as prime minister while he continued his negotiations with the Conservatives. Actually, the feedback we were getting from Gus O'Donnell was that the palace was desperate for Gordon not to resign as prime minister because they didn't want to put the Queen in the constitutionally awkward position of not knowing who consensually was to be mm. the prime minister. So couldn't he stay on? And the tension between the politics of being the squatter and the constitutional propriety of staying on as prime minister just became overwhelming in yeah. those hours. And in the end, Gordon just said to Nick, I'm sorry, Nick, I can't do this anymore. I'm going. He didn't want to leave Downing Street in the dark. Basically walked out and um, said to the cabinet secretary, the palace, and Nick, sorry, I'm just leaving. But I mean, our system doesn't really have a way no, we to could, manage these hours. You're right. And we could see that. You could, I mean, you could feel that tension. And you're right. Constitutionally, we have to have a prime minister. And so what Nick was saying, in effect, was, please do your duty until there is someone the palace can legitimately call upon. Or until I'm ready. Yeah. Until the talks have concluded and there actually can be a government. And that's what I mean by, in the end, the Labour leverage for the Lib Dems against the Conservatives essentially ran out of road in those hours. But basically, by then, the deal was done. I mean, what we were doing in the talks that afternoon was important stuff, but the key issues had been solved. We were working through some other things. There was a difficult conversation about Trident and a couple of other difficult issues as well. But actually, we were, I think, by the, think time, by the time Gordon Brown got in his car, we were pretty much done. And what's amazing is what was negotiated during those five days held for five years. And that is staggering given the country had no memory of coalition. There was no kind of constitutional procedure for negotiating one. None of the people involved had done it. And there were a lot of predictions that it would fail. And it's kind of amazing that in those five days, I sometimes worry, I, I remember worrying in 2015, if we'd had to have new coalition talks, that it was going to take months that there was something about the urgency and the novelty of it that uh, enabled us to 
just get on with it and get it done. One of the interesting things was that for the civil servants, the coalition agreement having been negotiated, it was almost like a contract for the government. It seemed almost to have a higher status than a manifesto for a single party government. Because we'd been through it together, this agreement was what enabled this government to take place. And so it wasn't, can you do this or can't you do it or in a different way? It was, okay, we have this list of 140 things, they have to be delivered. Can I ask one final question of you, Danny? Mm. What would your advice be to Liberal Democrats in 2024 if they find themselves in a similar position that you and Nick did? Has Ed Davey made a big mistake before these talks, if they were to ever happen, have happened by saying he would never do a deal with the Conservatives? Because, Ed, you might be right that maybe there could never have been a coalition with Labour. Maybe the election result was overwhelmingly a rejection of Labour and you know, the Tories were coming in. But it did extract those, the, the threat of a Labour coalition. Of course. Did extract the AV referendum sure. pledge from the Conservatives, which was duly held, you know, a year later or whatever it was. So and we knew we were being used for that. But purpose. do you think Davies making against a... us were part of the politics of trying so to shift all of that? We've been talking about, you know, things Sunak and Starmer might learn from all of this. Ed Davies, by the way, was a cabinet minister in this coalition. So he had saw coalition close up. What are the kind of key couple of lessons you learn? Look, I think Ed Davey has already been clear about what his views are. I mean, I think the thing that we missed in these discussions was actually not about the politics. It was about the mechanics and how the government worked. I think that's where we really, we had a whole plan for that. And that's what we ran out of time for. And that's what caught us out on a, on a, on a lot of issues later on. So if you're ever in this, I mean, I don't think they will be in this position. Right? I don't think they want to be in this position. But if they are, you've got to take care of not just... What do you just... mean they don't want to be in this position? Well, I think... Uh, the, the... One coalition was enough. No, I think, I think a lot, you know, having been in there for five years and been through a period where we delivered a lot of what we cared about, and I think most of us are very proud of that, nonetheless, the electoral consequences for the Liberal Democrats were savage. And so the political willingness to get into that position again is, I think, pretty limited. There's some truth, isn't there, that Nick had been a, a member of the, of the European Parliament. He'd kind of grown up in Brussels. He had a, a very European view of politics. And for him, it was quite comfortable, the idea that you would have a long, thoughtful negotiation after an election where you would work out what coalition could be formed and what the agreement should be. And the problem we had was that our system finds that very, very difficult to deal with. You know, we're used to there being a winner and a loser and Labour had lost and we wanted to lose in a graceful way and we didn't want to look like we were clinging on. And at the moment, our system doesn't make it easy to have the kind of negotiation that you wanted to have. Is it possible I, to change it? I mean, I actually think we had the type of negotiation that we expected to have. And as George said, I think rightly, that what we came up with was actually a very good agreement in policy terms. In our system, two parties being in government doesn't sit comfortably. And so if you're the third party, you have to think very differently about how you communicate and about how government works. And if you can't change how government works, then your ability to win the government as much as you win or lose the election is really impaired. And I think that's what we suffered from. I think but you could have an American-type system where you say that you're going to have a period of weeks after the election before the new government starts, during which there is a handover and you make space for this kind of negotiation well, then- if you need it. Maybe that's why Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg became President Nick Clegg, which is his current job. On that, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Danny Alexander. That was fascinating. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
So I've, I've been having a slightly out-of-body experience talking about all this. I can't quite believe that that was the same person as I am today in the middle of those sort of momentous events in our nation's political life. And uh, I've also used the opportunity to sort of look back at some of the photos, some of the photos taken behind the scenes, which maybe we'll be able to put up on social media of like talks in the kind of key negotiating room and so on. And I have to remind myself, yes, that was me. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I, I find the whole thing quite distant, to be honest. Can you remember how you felt in those hours when David Cameron was you know, suddenly about to go to the palace? Do you know, the overwhelming feeling I had, and this is going to sound very odd to people, I think, was not of excitement. It wasn't even of kind of anxiety about taking on this big job. It was an enormous sense of relief. I know David actually felt something similar when he became prime minister, that we had got there and that somehow it justified not only how we had chosen to spend our careers, you know, the decisions we'd made in life to go into politics and that we had at least succeeded in getting to a high office and getting the party to govern, but also relief that we had carried our party to this point. There was a huge weight of expectation, particularly on David's shoulders, but also on mine. And you were so young. I was only 38 at the time. And I just remember thinking, what a relief. And someone once said to me, there are three great moments in a political career. The first is when they go, I, the returning officer for Tatton, declared you elected member of parliament. You and I have that experience. It's fantastic. The second is when they say, George, I'd like you to join the cabinet. And you go, I've made it to the cabinet. Then the third, which neither of us ever heard, was <laughs> no. Mr. Balls, Mr. Osborne, are you ready to form a government <laughs> when the king or the queen says that to you? We, we never got to that point. We but were ready for it. <laughs> we were ready. Look, you know, we wouldn't have said no if someone had asked us. So, yeah, I felt enormous relief. And that night, when, which we'll talk about some future point of coming into Downing Street, I just thought, oh, uh, yeah, we made it. And, and then it was next morning when it was like, oh, my God, now. I'm the Chancellor and there's a huge responsibility on my shoulders. See, for us, it was the opposite, of course, because we had been in Downing Street for 13 years and this was the end. And we really knew from about two in the afternoon that it was ending that day. And there was a sort of gathering in Gordon's big office and there was a wider range of people. I mean, Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell, Andrew Adonis were there, as well as Gordon's core team, Sarah Brown. And um, we were all sitting around waiting for these Nick Clegg calls. And there was a lot of reminiscing. We um, did what we always did with Gordon. We would tell his jokes and then make him deliver the punchline and everybody would pretend to laugh. And uh, there was humour, but it was also like a very momentous ending and a sense that this might be the last time any of us would ever be serving in Downing Street. And then Gordon had Sarah and his kids there and you know, he had kept them so out of the public eye and um, had decided that they wanted the children to walk with him out of Downing Street so that there would be photos so they could remember that's where they'd lived and that their dad had been prime minister. And um, I didn't watch this. And when we'd come into government in 1997... We had no children. And now they were 11, 9, 6. They'd all grown up with their mum and dad in Downing Street, in politics, in government. And that was ending and we didn't know what was going to come next. But there was, it was the opposite emotion. It was, I guess, relief that those days had finished. But a sense of 
of loss, of of mourning, of things coming to an end. It was a, quite a sombre, sombre time. I had very similar feelings, but that was all six years later when <laughs> something similar happened to me. I do remember watching on television, absolutely gripped. I've always, as well as being a participant in politics, I've always been a spectator in the sense that I've really enjoyed watching political events. I remember when I was a very junior employee in Downing Street, watching Tony Blair arriving in Downing Street from home and being excited about it, even though I was literally, I'd lost my job that day. And I remember watching Gordon Brown walking out with his children and being quite emotional. And by the way, you know, Gordon Brown and I, you know, don't have now and didn't have then a very good relationship. So there was no particular personal connection, but I could see the kind of human element. And it was almost like a sort of revelation he had these children. I mean, he was such a sort of political machine. It was unlike Blair, who had, you know, the family was very much part of the Blair image. I think for Gordon was such a sort of political, you know, colossus and, and you know, you didn't really sort of think he had a hinterland. And that was the moment it was revealed. I have to say I had a sort but, of but, cynic- but of course his first daughter had died yes, when course. he was the Chancellor. Then he had um, two sons, one of whom had cystic fibrosis, which had been kind of revealed by the Sun newspaper, a leak from the hospital. And he and Sarah had made a decision. We'd done the same, Yvette and I. In fact, we'd done this before they did. We talked to them about it, which was that to keep your children out of the public eye would in the end be something they'd be very grateful for. And Gordon and Sarah decided not to let their children be part of that Until the end. Until the end. And I think that they paid a big price for that. I think it's really hard. You know, if you are cabinet minister, even the chancellor, fine. But if you are the prime minister, if you are the king... To keep your family out of the public eye, people expect to see them. But at the same time, you know, we all chose to be politicians and they didn't. Yeah, but I have to say I had a very, you know, I was at the time absolutely ruthlessly focused on getting the Conservatives and myself into office. And I remember thinking as Gordon walked down the street with the children, you know, if he'd shown us a bit more of that, he would have been a harder person to beat. That is Um, maybe right. No, and I thought it was actually very nice for me to be with Danny Alexander because he is a good friend. He was at my wedding earlier this year. We ended up working very closely together in the Treasury. That wasn't the expectation. In fact, then, because it was expected that David Laws would go into the Treasury and Danny Alexander would become the Scottish Secretary. But we ended up being very, very close friends. But I couldn't help notice you got quite tetchy with him at one point in the uh, conversation we had. There was a bit of irritation bubbling up there, wasn't there? There was. And uh, it took me a bit by surprise being transported back to those days. But at the same time, you know, that's very real and very raw. It's important to kind of explain this, really. I mean, we sit across from each other talking about politics. And at the time, you were coming in to be Chancellor. You were a Conservative. You wanted to cut the size of the state. You were happy to cut public spending. You were never that bothered about tax credits. You were quite happy to use a political argument if you could to put Labour on the defensive. I never complained about that. I mean, I just thought that was politics. That was the world we were in. And we were sort of, you know, if you won and we lost, then that was our fault. So I never feel any sort of antagonism to that. I'm not one of these people who who has to hate my opponents. In fact, I hate that style of politics, which has become so prevalent in recent years. And I think that's why we can talk and reflect and and learn and we don't have to agree on everything. But it's different with the Liberal Democrats because... um, There's quite a lot of Tories who agree with you on that. I'm not one of them, but I know. Explain why. It's it's different because the thing was, they were the guys who 
always were claiming to be progressive or a bit left of centre. They were the ones who wanted to be more kind of committed to and less pragmatic than Labour. They had fought the general election, opposing immediate cuts in public spending. They had, at various times, attacked Labour from the left when we were in government. And then suddenly, in that moment, they do this huge flip. Vince Cable's excluded. They're immediately backing in-year public spending cuts. They sort of become champions of this strategy, your strategy, and that changes things because it's not a conservative government's plan. It suddenly becomes the national coalition in the national interest. And Nick Clegg had a choice, David Laws and Danny did, which is they could have said, you know, we're going into this coalition to try and moderate the Conservatives to, to to hold them to account. And in some areas, they did that. But on the central issue of the economy and public spending, they went in and suddenly gung-ho became, it was Labour's fault. It was Labour's public spending irresponsibility. Reducing the deficit is the driving force of this coalition. They signed up to the whole economic strategy, which no, you'd set was... look hook, line and sinker. And we just thought, what are you doing? And that is the thing I still find very hard. So those moments with Danny Alexander, where I was sort of saying, look, be honest about what you actually did. Those were the points where it got touchy. So I would make a couple of observations. First of all, I think they honestly believed that there needed to be reductions in the deficit. And I would say if you cast yourself back to that. Yeah, but so did we. Yes. But remember, that was not hardly front and centre of what Gordon Brown was telling the country. It was what Actually, the late Alistair Darling was saying. It's what I said very many times. I think Gordon did say it too. I know, but you know, come on, he was not, it wasn't a kind of central part of the campaign that Labour was fighting that, you know, tough cuts are coming in public spending. We touched on it in the conversation with Danny Alexander, but Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, the permanent secretary at the Treasury, the cabinet secretary, you know, were all impressing on the Liberal Democrats how important it was to have credible spending plans. And I, they bought it, including Vince Gable. Second point was... But they all thought Alistair Darling's spending plans were credible before. And so the idea that suddenly credible plans meant a change from the Darling plans... Well, I think this was, you know, if I was... There was a uh, bit of politics being played there, particularly no, by I, government, I think we, we achieved a very good outcome in the negotiation with the Liberal Democrats because we did. gave them things that we were very happy to concede. So their big ask on Which the economy... Which exploded in their faces. Well, their big ask on the economy was cutting income tax by increasing thresholds. I was like, fine. You want to cut income tax? I'm I'm all for cutting income tax. Uh, which Rishi Sunak is now entirely unwound. He is almost entirely unwound. Second, you know, they wanted a pupil premium, i.e. extra money for poorer children in schools. That was actually an idea the Conservatives had also been talking about. They wanted some additional commitments on the environment. That was fine. Cameron at the time was talking about, you know, vote blue, go green. And the big concession, which was hard because, you know, it was hard with our party, was the AV referendum, referendum on the voting system. But the price for all of those was sign up to George Osborne's economic plans. And they did. And I thought coming out of it, and you know, David very much was behind this as well. You know, we have secured what we really need, which is in a hung parliament, in the middle of a very difficult financial situation, not just in Britain, but across the world with countries like Greece falling over. We've got a coalition signed up to what we would regard as a credible, serious economic plan to deal with our budget deficit. And and that was the big prize. Uh, and I think the only question people had was, is it going to endure? Is it going to last? Is it all going to fall apart later this year? Which is why we kind of rushed later in the, the months that followed to put the economic parts of the coalition agreement 
into legislation through budgets and uh, spending statements. I think that, look, that's all true. And the reason why Vince Cable couldn't be in any of the talks was because he totally disagreed with that strategy. Whereas, you know, it turned out that um, I David don't think Lord he did and- totally disagree. I had a good relationship with Vince Cable. I, everyone always thought I had a rather tetchy one. I, I didn't. Um, he was very important because actually, without his support, you know, I couldn't do anything as Chancellor later. Chris Hewn was much more difficult. Chris Hewn was the person at the time who most vociferously objected, but basically got overruled. Vince Cable, the only thing he wanted was a commitment that it wasn't all public expenditure cuts, that there were tax rises as well. And he signed up to an increase in VAT and an increase in capital gains tax was his demand. So, you know, that was the, the composition of the public expenditure tax squeeze was where they did have an influence, but they did not have an influence on the overall path. But as you say, and they could have. It's interesting, you know. It was I the price ask, they paid to be in the cabinet is the truth. But that, and and dumping on Labour and playing into this kind of nonsense that it was Labour's public spending plans which caused the global financial crisis was something that they did. And that is the thing I think which um, kind of winds up Labour people because we think I, you know I can tell. have a bit of principle. <laughs> For God's sake. Still still raw all these years later. Now listen, what about of course it's still raw because it was, you know They didn't really have a it was, choice. It was the on. last time we were in government. Yeah, but they had to go into government. I, I don't criticize them that for at all. And do you agree? Here's a good question, because I this is one that's relevant to the future. I think they were right to choose a coalition rather than a supply and confidence arrangement. So the supply and confidence arrangement, just to remind people, is that you will pass a budget, you'll support a budget. And you won't vote against the government in a no confidence arrangement, but you don't join the government. You're just another party in parliament that's not going to bring the government down. But, you know, to me, you sign up to all of the kind of pain of supporting the government because your opponents say, well, why are you not bringing this government down? Why are you not kicking them out? Why are you not joining us in the voting lobbies against their budget without any of the benefits? Whereas the full coalition meant that, look, Vince Cable, Nick Clegg, Chris Hewn, Danny Alexander, Ed Davey were the most powerful, most influential liberals there have been in British politics since Lloyd George, since the beginning of the 20th century. I totally agree. And a coalition was the right thing for them to do. And they had to go into government at that time because things were going to be unstable with a hung parliament. So I don't criticise them for for that. I do think they massively underestimated their um, power. I mean, the truth was they didn't get any of the big officers of state. Nick Clegg made himself much less relevant than he he should have done. And they um, were powerful inside the government. We can we'll talk about this as you know, I'm sure in a future episode. But you know, fundamentally, the government was driven by something called the Quad, which was me, Danny Alexander, Nick Clegg, and David Cameron, and that's where all key decisions were made. And they could they did veto things. We were actually remained a remarkably confidential government, so that didn't always come out. But I think people underestimate their power. Danny, of course, referred in the conversation we've just had to the fact they did pay a very heavy political price because they got wiped out. And it was quite interesting. I thought you actually looked rather shocked when he said that Ed Davey would not want to do a similar kind of coalition deal if the opportunity arose in the general election if there was a hung parliament. Because it was like you were thinking, well, why wouldn't you? But clearly, Danny Alexander had a different take on Ed Davey. Well, I think the most interesting kind of news for today, today's politics, is 
if Danny's right, that Ed Davey doesn't want to do a coalition with Labour. I mean, we already know Ed Davey says he doesn't want to do a deal with the Conservatives. And our whole conversation with Danny Alexander shows the value for the Liberal Democrats of being able to say, well, we might go with the other side. You know, if all of the conversation we've had was you and me explaining why we had to offer things to the Liberal Democrats to stop them getting into bed with the other party. So if Ed Davey's just saying, I won't do a deal with the Tories, he's throwing away all the leverage that you've just heard Danny Alexander had during those talks and Nick Clegg. But second, if he's not going to have a coalition with Starmer, this is in the situation where Labour's got the largest number of seats, largest number of votes, but they haven't got an overall majority. Then what is Ed Davey thinking of? Is he thinking of a supply and confidence arrangement on Labour? It'll create a pretty weak government because it will kind of live vote by vote, hand to mouth, which is pretty interesting for British politics over the next five years. But it seems to me the Liberal Democrats are throwing away, again, that big opportunity to influence things. Maybe they then need to think, is there a way, which many parties in Europe struggle with, for a minority party to do better at the subsequent election? But I personally would think it was pretty crazy to throw away the chance of being in government again. It goes to those cultural questions, though, about how British government works and how the public perceive it. I mean, in 2010, the only thing more popular than Nick Clegg was the idea of a coalition in the national interest. And by 2015, the only thing more unpopular than Nick Clegg in British politics was the idea of another coalition, because coalition had been seen to be, by very many people, a bad thing, independent of um, Ooh, whether I'm not that's sure really I agree true. About that. I think the Liberal Democrats were made a big mistake in 2015 of saying they might do a deal with Labour, which was not credible. And so people to keep out Ed Miliband voted Conservative in Liberal seats. But I think they should have considered, if it had been possible, if the Conservatives could have agreed, to run again as a coalition. I think the concept of the coalition was still quite popular in 2015. And you could have said, you know, job not done. But anyway, that, that's... We'll that that definitely... feels like a discussion for another day. I think the only other thing I'm going to say from a lessons point of view is that in politics... Of course, winning is the most important thing. But because it's a dynamic game and you always have the chance to come back, you can lose well or you can lose badly. And, you know, I think looking back on this, I think there was a, a real risk that Labour could have um, lost this election badly if we had got into some kind of messy, unsustainable relationship with the Liberal Democrats in 2010. I think Labour would have then, it would have fallen apart. It wouldn't have lasted. And actually the long-term damage for Labour would have been very substantial. We played an important public service by allowing you to reach a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and kind of giving you a bit of cover for two or three days. I'm not sure whether... Uh, That's not how it felt at the time. It didn't feel sure. like you were doing us a great public I'm service. not sure whether Rishi Sunak would do the same thing because I think that it's very risky in our system, Gordon Brown took a big hit by being seen as the squatter, Labour what? clinging on to power. You know, unless you have rules which make it possible and legitimate, the truth was, George, you wanted us to be there while you negotiated with the Liberal Democrats, while simultaneously saying from Friday, Gordon Brown is illegitimate and should go right well, now. And that is a, no, I think you a real a very, danger of losing badly. I think you raise a really interesting point, which is it didn't feel like that at the time. Honestly, we just wanted Labour out and us in. But I think those five days, which were only possible because Gordon Brown remained, did give us five days in which to create a stable coalition government. And I think if Gordon Brown had walked out on Friday morning, immediately after the election... Which is what you were wanted. Which was what we were calling for and what we wanted. We would have been plunged into a minority government trying to negotiate a coalition from office. 
it's an interesting question, therefore, in the kind of conservatives' interest. If they think there's no prospect of a deal with the Liberal Democrats in that situation, do you just go on the night? I think there's general lessons here, though, for Starmer and for Labour, which is respect for the Liberal Democrats. You can't do a deal with people you regard as sort of... However hard you find it. You can't think of them as sort of traitors to the progressive cause. You've got to respect them. You've got to do the preparation now, bother to read their manifesto, work out the policies that they feel strongly to rather than being dismissive about them, deal with the party leader. I think throughout this as a lesson, which is they're trying to, you know, Gordon's trying to go round Nick Clegg and the party leader is the key person to engage with. And then try and keep the unity of your party because what sort of is fatal for Labour in this period is that there are lots of Labour voices such as yourself saying, hold on, this thing's not going to work, whereas Cameron's able to command the majority of his party. Now, that, of course, was partly because we were all very keen to get into office. I think there are some really good lessons here, and hopefully... Uh, this will, will, the only thing I'd say is those are the lessons you'd learn if you were the opposition party trying to get into government. And all those things you've just said are completely the right way to think about it. If you are the Conservatives in 2010, I'm not sure if you are the incumbent party after 13 years yeah, in government, they are necessarily the right lessons. And I think if you want a better outcome next time around, or even the same outcome, then the thing which you need right now is the cabinet secretary talking to the party leaders about whether there are arrangements to legitimise this process. Because actually, if it's being seen to be illegitimate from the first hours, it's actually really hard to stay in it. And maybe next time around, Rishi Sunak will decide it's not for him. But uh, there we are. We're done. That was our first ever deep dive, our Inside the Room historical episode. And uh, I enjoyed it, although it's quite draining. Well, we've come up for air from our deep drive yeah. now. Listen, we want to say a big thank you to you, Danny, for joining us, our first guest in the studio. And I think he really entered into the spirit of the conversation, great. which was terrific. We should also, I think, thank Sky and the BBC because we used quite a lot of their archives. And there were a lot of reporters working equally hard during those five days in May all those years ago. There were, and would love to hear from you. What did you think? Did you enjoy that? Uh, are there other big political events which you would like us to deep dive into if we do another Inside the Room episode, which is the particular political period you'd like us to examine? Let us know by getting in touch at questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Love to know your ideas. I mean, what do you think? What do you fancy deep Well, we could do, um, I mean, this will be a real trauma for me. We could do the Brexit referendum. Scottish independence referendum, which was really interesting. I think 9-11 is a hugely important day which shapes things. I was a backbench MP at the time. It's obviously seared in my memory, of course, like everyone else. There's the financial crash. Bank independence. Lots of... Uh, the day it, you went to the Olympics? Well, I think we've already covered that. Okay. We? <laughs> I'm just saying maybe that wouldn't be a deep dive. That would be like a shallow little <laughs> paddle. I'd uh, like to do that again, wouldn't you? Yeah, I really enjoyed doing that. So hopefully you, you all did who are listening to this. But we're going to be getting back to normal business next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.